I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. spooky nerds and welcome to talking strange a paranormal pop culture show with the den of geek network where we discuss the entertainment of the unexplained i am your host aaron sagers a journalist author researcher of all things weird and currently i can be seen on travel channel and discovery plus's paranormal caught on camera now if you didn't know 2022 is the 125th anniversary of of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, In fact, on May 26, 1897, Irish author Bram Stoker published one of the most important and well-known pieces of Gothic fiction, introduced one of the most well-known fictional characters in the form of Count Dracula. And I, I, I honestly can never say it without saying it like Count Dracula. You know, thank you, Bella Lugosi. And... I don't think you can find a corner of this globe where people do not have an awareness of Dracula. And it set the template, set the stage for all things vampires in pop culture. Yes, vampires had existed before within fiction, but nothing had the worldwide impact of Dracula. Now, with that said, this is also the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu, which is the first film adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but not really a licensed or legal adaptation. And that is part of the conversation we're going to be having here today. So without further ado, let me bring in this gentleman. He is the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. He's the international best-selling co-author of Dracula the Undead that came out in 2009, the, which is the official Stoker family-endorsed sequel to Dracula. He is also the co-editor of The Lost Journal of Bram Stoker, The Dumplin' Years, that came out in 2012. And in 2018, he wrote, co-authored with J.D. Barker, a prequel to Dracula called Dracul. And that was UK's number one best-selling hardcore novel and horror and supernatural in 2018, and a top finalist, top five finalist for the Horror Writers Association for the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a Novel. He is a hell of a guy. I'm lucky to call him a friend. And we also, a handful of years ago, uh, traveled to Romania and toured around Transylvania and the surrounding areas while. <laughs> trying to make a tv show story of my life uh so without further ado let me bring him in mr dacre stoker hey dacre aaron how are you doing <laughs> i'm doing great man thank you for joining me today i know you're a busy guy you're uh you, you're, you're always busy because you're not just the ambassador st- uh, for the stoker family you still have a regular job, a job totally separated from uh, fangs and blood and horror, right? Well, yeah, that, that's true. You know, my, my sporting background has still stayed with me. I do coach uh, the number one player in the world in a, in a very strange game, uh, very appropriate for your show, um, strange game of, of court tennis. 
Um, so that that keeps me busy when I'm not, you know, in, in the books, in the libraries, in the archives, looking for really cool things, or heading off with you to Transylvania to the deep dark <laughs> bowels of of nowhere, hearing wolves howl and so on. So yeah, always <laughs> looking for cool adventures. But as you mentioned at the top of your show, the 125th anniversary of Dracula, it's a big year, a lot of a lot of speaking engagements, um, a lot of writing still to be done. You know, there are things that are just ongoing, things that I'm finding. So very cool to share that with some of your listeners today. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth it's it's funny to me and and pardon some some gentle ribbing from me. Uh, but when people hear the name Dacre and when people hear the name Stoker, they might think that the guy that is about to appear on screen is going to be clad all in black and looking a certain uh, way a certain spooky way yes maybe even with some fangs and so this is a you know we we put the we distribute this as video also as a podcast but uh i'm sure you probably have have had that that assumption greet you in the past with other interviews well yeah i mean the, the first thing is you know oh, that dacre that's a made-up name right it's going to try to get people to buy the dracula book but you know, it's not. I mean, it's that's actually the name I was christened. And actually, my parents met Dacre Stoker on their honeymoon. And 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 Dacre Stoker came from Bram's father's brother, named named a child Dacre Stoker, who turned out to be a very interesting guy. And he was an Irishman uh, in the British Navy on loan to the Australian Navy. And he was a captain of a submarine in World War One that took a sub up Gallipoli during the horrible landing of Gallipoli. So uh, there's some interesting people in the family. I was named after one. Uh, there is actually a Bram Stoker. One of my cousins named their children after after Uncle Bram. Um, so, yeah, a lot to live up to and an interesting name. But, you know, I tend to sort of I think I feel better with the sort of the maybe the theater manager look rather than the creation of the theater manager himself. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Bram himself was just a, a gentlemanly type uh, and he knew how to grow a good beard, which I can uh, respect. You you can I I haven't tried it. My son though, it, funny enough, Aaron, he's got a he's got a nice beard like yours, and he has there's a strange resemblance to Bram in, in his in his beard, that kind of reddish hair, that iris look. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I've tried it. It came out miserably. So just I got rid of that and moved on. <laughs> well, it's the the Stoker family. Correct me if I'm wrong. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, no one was really bearing the torch before you. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Bram was one of seven children, and of those seven, only three had offspring. Of course, Bram did. He had a son, but that son had a daughter, so then the name of Stoker is gone. Uh, in World War II, both of her husbands died, so that name was rarely gone, but there are some children still alive. But they were chartered accountants, um, not really interested in, in carrying the torch or continuing the literature, but they do, you know, every time, every now and then, you know, they find something in a box, like they're the ones that actually found the lost journal. In, in, in their attic and said, Dacre, you might want to do something with this. So Elizabeth Miller and I published it. Um, and that was a cool find. And they've made things available to to uh, archives. They sold things to different um, universities. So they're, they're available for people. And they've kept some pretty cool stuff. You know, Bram's watch fob and his actual, his watch, this, the seal, the druid head seal that Bram actually sealed all his letters with. Uh, they still have some of the trophies that Bram won at Trinity College for, for sports. So those are some family heirlooms they're just not going to get rid of. And when I was over there a few years ago um, doing some speaking engagements, I visited the, the, the private library and found some really cool books, like signed books 
by Walt Whitman to Bram, to Mark Twain to Bram. Some of the some of these familiar things, Pamela Coleman Smith, who were friends of Bram uh, when he was living and working uh, as a theater manager, uh, he had some cool stuff that that Florence did not sell. Um, you know that that's interesting enough too, uh, Aaron. I know we've chatted about sort of you are what you read. Uh, and those are things where I get little subtle hints about Bram as I try to fill out an idea of what kind of person he was. Is what were the books that his wife, Bram's wife, sold um, when he died, and what do they tell me? And and one of the things just to share with you because I, I can't remember if I have already, but it's very appropriate for this show on the paranormal. Bram actually had some books about um, the paranormal in the day, Second Sight, and he and he actually reviewed a book of Second Sight in the highlands and islands of Scotland. And, that, and that's, that's been recently discovered that Bram actually reviewed one of those books. And then I found an article in a Dundee, Scotland newspaper that Bram is actually recounting some of his own, let's just say connections or uh, encounters with Second Sight. So fascinating. Th- th- it was fascinating. And, you know, you think of the occult during the time when Bram was writing Dracula. It was this was not people, you know, on Friday the 13th sacrificing a black cat. This was really interesting looking into the unknown and looking deeper into what organized religion tells people about the afterlife and the interest in spiritualism. And, and we've got, you know, we've got records of Bram and Twain sitting down chatting about this stuff. So it's, it's really interesting that it was in the forefront of some of the great thinkers of the time. And Bram managed to slide it into Dracula in a number of places, you know, with mesmerism and mind control and that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, it's so it's I, I, I thought about the fact that he did liaise with with other icons of the time. You mentioned Mark Twain. You mentioned uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, he knew Conan uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, correct? Yes, and they absolutely. interacted. A- absolutely. This this was one of the neat relationships that I've uncovered. Um, Bram did some newspaper articles on people to make money on the side. One was a very extensive article about Conan Doyle as he was preparing to get married. Him and Florence were, were invited to his wedding, but Bram also helped Conan Doyle adapt one of his short stories to a stage play where Henry Irving played the the lead in Waterloo. Um, and then, of course, something that you and I have discussed uh, at some of the conventions together, this really neat letter that Conan Doyle wrote to Bram congratulating him on uh, on the story Dracula. And he actually wrote, you know, it's one of the most interesting stories of diablerie uh, in recent memory, which obviously is all about the devil. So here's, yeah. here's a subtle look at the two of these guys that are interested in the impact on the occult and, and the devil. And, of course, that Dracula was Bram's devil incarnate. Um, this this was his being Henry Irving on stage playing Mephistopheles and all his school stuff. He's he's uncovered in the in the uh, London Library about the devil and what kind of grip that had on people, the interest it had on people, while religion at the time was kind of losing its its power over the masses. When you look at a character like Van Helsing at, at the time that Bram was writing Dracula, and then when it came out, and even for years after it was published, this was still a time of spiritualism. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle being a a leader in the spiritualist movement, and it was it was these characters. They were characters, the real life spiritualists, and the people that were forming the psychical societies were learned gentlemen 
people who would dress up not in uh, black suits uh, or not in black t-shirts looking for ghosts, but instead they would be dressed up in nice three-piece suits and things like that. Van Helsing very fits very much fits that model. Uh, Bram himself would have fit fit in quite well with these characters. So it is interesting that he tapped into this spiritualist movement, maybe without even intending to do so. What were some of the what were some of the things that in this second sight review that he alluded to that that he may have himself experienced? Well, there were there was two particular cases which was really interesting. One, he mentioned um, that he went to um, a home in Edinburgh. I don't know if it was a you know sounded like a social visit, and he heard the mother talking to the you know sort of two or three year old child. Maybe it was three or four year old child saying, "Oh, you know, Tommy's not playing with me. Why is that? Why is why is not? He's going to die." And it's like, what? And so don't be silly, don't be silly, don't be silly, don't be silly. So Bram talking to the mother said, well, my, my, the, the daughter has, has noticed that her brother's going to die. And there was nothing wrong. I mean, obviously they didn't have modern medicine. I don't know if it took the temperature, but the kid was just fine. Two days later, the child was found dead in its crib. Well, wow. So this little child, Bram experienced this going on. The second one was, was more firsthand, and it is Bram in Cruden Bay. Now we know... My friend Mike Shepard wrote a wrote books about Bram. I've I've, I've uh, uh, did a, uh, a forward for When Brave Men Shudder. We know Bram went to Cruden Bay thirteen times, twelve of them in the Cruden Bay Winifold area. And the Earl of Errol was the guy that owned the big castle. Incidentally, that's the castle you and I have chatted about, where the interior with the octagonal room is this exact same layout that Bram used in Castle Dracula. So right. he he must have been in there. But further to this proof is in this article, he mentions going bird hunting. You know, they all go out into the fields. I don't know if it's grouse or pheasant or whatever it is. And they all have their loaders, you know, their gillies and their loaders to do all the menial work. And Bram said to the ghillie, oh, the Lord's looking good, isn't he? And the ghillie said, oh, no. You know, the sheet is on his chest, which is, you know, means the sheet's about to cover his head. Sure. He goes, don't be silly. He looks just fine. And then that was it. He went back the next year to Cruden Bay and he was invited again to go shooting and he, and he was given a different loader and he said, no, I'd, I'd like that one, please, because that was the guy he used the year before. And he took the opportunity to say, you see, young man, you, you weren't right. He said, the air looks just fine and he has been fine for a year. He goes, no, 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 the sheet is higher. And he goes, what? He's a silly man. And he goes, no, no, you'll see. Two days later, a brain, uh, a brain aneurysm killed the arrow. Hmm. So here is an example that Bram um, you know, had firsthand from one of these Scottish Highlanders who over a period of a year had this feeling and called it. And, and to, to sort of confirm it, Bram followed up by saying the man's doctor, the Earl's doctor, had no inclination whatsoever, had no medical reports to, to give him an idea that the arrow had anything wrong with his brain. Obviously, even today, you can't usually find a brain aneurysm without really sophisticated scanning. But that 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 loader of the gun called it that there was he was going to die. Would you go so far as to say that Bram was a believer in the occult, the supernatural? You know, 
I would go so far as to say is, number one, he was very interested in it and he had a very open mind. There's nothing that I've found, Aaron, and he was very measured about saying if I believe in it or not. And I think it's because, as you just said a few moments ago, you know, people who were interested in practicing these thoughts could not always be completely open about them because they might be a little bit shunned in society. So they wore their suits and everything. But if you look into things like the Hellfire Club, the Golden Dawn, they were held behind closed doors. There was also, and, and J.D. and I, Barker and I researched this, when you went to a Hellfire Club meeting, it was secret to get in and nobody could see you leaving. The, the curtains were down in the carriage, secret entrance, secret exit. So I think Bram being an upstanding theater manager had to hold a lot of these thoughts inside in public so he wouldn't be jeopardizing his reputation or that or Henry Irving. Bram was a member of the Freemasons. We know that for sure. He did attend some meetings of the Order of Odd Fellows, which was a, a part of the Golden Dawn. Yeah. And I do believe, you know, long-winded answer, even though he didn't say it, I think he believed in, in some of these things. Um, I think he, and again, open-minded enough, great famous quote in Dracula, there are mysteries which men may only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. And I think, Aaron, that's the stuff he's talking about. I think he's respected. He respects enough of, of modern science, but he also respected the unknown and things that couldn't be proven by modern science. Well, and he was raised, uh, he's a young Irish boy. Certainly, there's certainly, a, it's a culture steeped in folklore, steeped in interest, you know, in the supernatural. This, and you, you've looked into this, you've looked into some of his interest in folklore and where he was hearing tales as a, as a boy, correct? Well, absolutely. You know, the first seven years of Bram's life, he was, he was bedridden with some sort of mysterious illness. Uh, my best theory is it was some sort of respiratory allergies because he did grow out of it without scarring his, his cardiovascular system. That, and he was able to go on to become a champion athlete. Um, so whatever it was, he grew out of it. But for seven years, he was essentially homeschooled by nanny and mum by telling him stories. And I've researched those stories. One I know in particular uh, that actually Bram asked his mother to write down called the Charlotte Stoker cholera story where she experienced firsthand the cholera epidemic of 1832 where people were misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and crawled out of the graves. When that, that's actually one of their neighbors did that. So even though that's not superstition, that's real. That's, that's more horrendous than yeah. superstition. But there was also the Dare Do and the Arbracht and all kinds of other really interesting Irish superstition and folklore that fairies and banshees, um, changelings that were all supernatural um, and, and, and superstitious things, you know, that kind of were obviously cautionary tales to control, uh, you know, people's behavior and actions and so on. But it was like, don't mess with this, the unknown, you know, this, this will get you, this will come back to haunt you. So he was at a young age that was ingrained upon him. So no wonder his fertile sense of imagination later on, when he started reading about it, Aaron started going to meetings with Freemasons. It all sort of came together in him in a very mature way as he could develop a serious outlook on life, but still with a very young, dark, macabre sense of imagination from the beginning. Did you, did you, have you developed any ideas about, well, with, with account, this is a character, as I mentioned before, there's obviously vampires existed in folklore. 
we you know we have uh mercy brown the the vampire of uh i guess uh, rhode island i think yeah and yeah. and uh, so there's the the folkloric vampires and then within fiction vampires had already existed but he introduced ideas such as bats were already affiliated somewhat vampires but transforming into a bat that was a stoker uh flourish uh i believe correct me if i'm wrong things like hatred of garlic that was uh stoker's introduction uh sunlight weakening his powers not killing him not not in the book that's 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 a good point because i know we're going to talk nosferatu in a moment so don't get those things mixed up no 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 yeah in the in the book he yeah not destroyed by sunlight but did did have you developed any ideas about where he came up with certain ideas such as that if those were just creative uh, flourishes adding to the folklore or if some of those things might have been rooted in in his own uh, fairy tales and experiences and stories that were passed along to him that's it's a great question um, and and to me uh, from what I've found it's it's so much of Bram's life and Dracula are sort of mergers you know, it's, it's the perfect storm. It's Bram's personal experiences that we've chatted about as a young boy. His upbringing in Ireland, which is steeped in all this when he gets a little bit older. His research in the Marshes Library. His connections and literary connections with, with uh, Oscar Wilde's mother, who had uh, encouraged him and other literati to, to write and express themselves when Bram's father was not, who wanted him just to be a civil servant. So there was that part of Bram that was like dying to become the writer. He was also an amateur artist and a founding member of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Club. So he was beginning to, uh, as a university student, um, express himself artistically as well as in, in a literary form. And then there came the theater. You see, the theater was Bram's first love and he got the job to go off to London to work for Henry Irving. And lo and behold, all of this again begins to take form. Remember, this is this merger of many things. Henry Irving playing the role of Mephistopheles, the, the devil in the play Faust for 27 years. And then we find he goes off to the London Library and does his research in, in, in an incredible, you know, interesting piece of, of digging. Philip Spedding, who is the, was the head of fundraising at the London Library, found all these books of spiritualism, mesmerism, uh, the occult, where they where, where respected medical doctors, respected priest is writing about the other world, uh, forces of, of supernatural power, not just kind of of the day whack jobs. You know, these were, you know, really respected people. And Bram's reading that. And we know we know he reads it because in a naughty sort of way, Bram actually made marks in the margins of these books, underlining things like vampirism and volcanoes were homes of the devil. So it all sort of came together for Bram, little bits and pieces, almost like, as I said, like a like a big stew, a good Irish stew with a little bit of Emily Gerard, uh, Transylvanian superstitions. Here's a Scottish lady that moved to Transylvania, and she wrote a, a booklet that had information on Transylvania superstition with the very tropes that you mentioned, Aaron, in the beginning of your question. How did Bram get the idea of the stake through the heart or cutting the head off and putting in garlic? So Gerard was interested in Scottish superstitions and she moved to Transylvania and wrote a, wrote a book uh, called Land Beyond the Forest with an essay called Transylvanian Superstitions. 
it all just came together for Bran with these books and his personal experience. And, and look what we end up with 125 years later. I guess every writer, every good writer is something of a sponge as far as seeing something, absorbing it, and then turning it into their, their own uh, creation. But it does seem like Bram was especially good at that. And even down to, I, I feel like people who really love Dracula know the importance of Whitby in, in the Bram Stoker story. But do you think that in the mainstream enough people realize that that Whitby had such a profound impact on Bram? You know, probably not, because unless you're aware of Bram's 125 pages of notes that live in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, and I highly recommend if you're ever in Philly, make an appointment, that you notice that Bram started his notes and his thinking process to hold the whole story in Austria, the province of Styria, and you mentioned at the top of your show other Dracula stories, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu set Carmilla in Styria. And so Bram was following suit, I think probably because his fellow Irishman uh, wrote the story a number of years before him and already set the tone that this is of a believable place for vampires. So he starts in Styria. And he also decides to call his count Wampir, which is Austrian for vampire. But then we know by the dates and the notes, and we know that he only went to Whitby once because, funnily enough, in Whitby, they keep all the names of the visitors in the newspaper. They log all, like a big, like a guest book. So we know when Bram and his wife and son went to Whitby, where they stayed. Incidentally, they stayed on Royal Crescent, the exact same house or the exact same street that Bram has Lucy and Mina stay in. But to, to get back to this, the, the importance of Whitby is, if he didn't take this one holiday there, we probably would have had, number one, a very different name and a very different location for the action. But he was so taken by this wonderful Gothic atmosphere and also the sense of uh, the realism that he could get in Whitby as he visited with the Coast Guard and the, and the rescue crews who gave him information from their book, The Wrecks of Whitby's, of this strange Russian schooner that arrived under full sail with none of the crew about and somehow landed on the beach and a big black dog jumps out. So Bram uses that as, of course, the arrival of the Count in a supernatural storm, but he's got his supernatural and he's got his reality all blended in together. So Whitby, uh, Aaron, is um, proud to say, you know, we're where Dracula was conceived and chapter six, seven, and eight were born. Um, and you got to come and see it to believe it because it's it's all right there. People walk through the town with their copy of Dracula, Dracula kind of re-walking re, re, uh, the steps of, of Mina as she runs through town and sees the graveyard and the headstones that Bram takes the names off of. So mm -hmm. very cool place. That's one of the spots that I'm going to be going back uh, on this tour in May to kind of let people feel it and try to get the vibe that Bram did to write you know his chapters there. Yeah. I, 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 I might have to join you. I, I still haven't been to Whitby and I really, uh, it's, it's a location that I don't know why, how I have not made it over there yet. Uh, considering my, my love and knowledge of the book, but just the, the fact that this so inspired Bram, uh, I, yeah, I, I need to make my way over there. Listen, let's, if, if we have suffered through Transylvania together, well, some parts were very comfortable, no, no doubt. Yeah. Some weren't so comfortable. 
then you got to come to you got to come to Whitby with me. And then even we go up the coast to Cruden Bay where Bram actually wrote the story. So you got to yeah. put that on so, someday. Bring some of your listeners. Let's go do it together. I yeah. I mean, hey, I. <laughs> I, there's a lot of stories that emerged out of uh, our time in in Romania, <laughs> and uh, a, lot, a lot of fond memories and some weird ones too. The the I want to I want to like fast forward a little bit because, of course, the book comes out and uh, 1897, right? So Bram during this time he's still largely known as Irving's assistant and. Yeah. It's not like his life was suddenly uh, silver spoons, gold plated uh, after releasing this book. He's he's not necessarily. And then he dies in 1912. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So when he goes, let, let's kind of set the stage for the Stoker family at this point. What is now going on? I mean, his his widow, Florence super wealthy uh, widow of a famed author? Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. Let's, let's, set the, let's set the stage here, so to speak. So 27 years, he manages the Lyceum Theater with Irving. He helps Irving become the first actor ever knighted. Um, Bram gets a lot of credit for it, but he doesn't get a pension, and he doesn't get an inheritance from Irving. Uh, he was paid well during his time, but he had to live well to you know hold up his end so to speak and and keep Florence and the son well educated and so on but Bram had sort of a, when, when Irving died in in, in 05 Bram had a kind of a sad decline for the seven years of health his health began to go he had a stroke he, he wrote the layer of the white worm on his deathbed essentially and if you've ever read it you know it's kind of a little disjointed but it's really strange and interesting but he did this as a favor to his publisher to try to, you know, the publisher's trying to squeeze one more winner out of him. Um, Dracula had 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 a decent run. Uh, it had, wasn't out of print. It sold its first 30,000 copies, but it wasn't making Bram a lot of money. Uh, authors weren't making a lot of money. Bram had the sense, though, a week before the book came out in 1897 to actually, because he was a theater manager, he knew this stuff, because he had a legal background uh, from his days in, in, uh, in Dublin, to protect the dramatic rights of, of Dracula by having a staged reading. And what that means, and it's pretty cool, Aaron, because the script, one and only script, sits in, in the uh, British Museum Library. Bram cut and pasted two advanced reader copies of Dracula and pasted them onto pages and put some handwritten notes in, had eight of his friends from the theater, and they were not all actors, they were stagehands and so on, just simply pass the script around and read the darn thing. It took about eight hours. And, you know, the, the urban legend is Henry Irving got up after watching 20 minutes and said, you know, dreadful and walked out. And this is one of the things that bugs me, Aaron, I'll share it with your guys, is everybody assumes that when Irving said dreadful, they mean it was, it was, it was terrible story. But doesn't it potentially mean that it was boring because it was looked like it's going to be eight hours or it was full of dread? Yeah, it was, it was scary. It was terrifying. Exactly. So, you know, one or two biographers say, oh, Henry Irving hated it because he was jealous that Bram was, you know, written a, a successful book and so on. But maybe not. Who knows? We don't know for sure. But what that did was set the stage for Bram leaving things behind for his wife to profit from because he knew he didn't leave her a lot of money. Uh, he actually had to take a loan from the uh, fr from an author society that Hall Kane helped him get 
to sort of round out his years. And then Bram's older brother, Sir William Thornley Stoker, a very famous doctor who was actually helped Bram with all the medical parts of Dracula. He left Florence. He died three months later, which was really strange and unexpected. He left Florence, you know, 2,000 pounds, which in those days was a lot of money. So she was okay, but she certainly wasn't making a lot of money of any of the residuals of anything. But what, what sort of began to happen was she started looking at, can I get this thing turned into a stage play? And she obviously had contacts and she tried um, and, and she had a, a false start with a guy called Morell, but then she kind of hit pay dirt with a fellow Irishman, Hamilton Dean. And that sort of started the ball rolling to uh, adapting the story to the stage, which brings it to a wider audience which then stimulates book sales down the road. And of course, we'll get into film in a moment. But that was, you know, she, her, they, they had a son uh, who was now a chartered accountant. He was a, a wonderful guy, very introverted, but he knew the law. He knew what his father did as far as the paperwork on all of his uh, copyrights and so on and making sure all the T's are crossed and, you know, all the, he kept track of the foreign royalties and so on. Um, but he, you know, he didn't lead the charge. It was Florence who was tougher than nails to make sure that when it was time to to move forward on these contracts and things, she she made sure it was done right. Just as an aside, one of the one of the stories, perhaps it's just legend, is that, but it's worth noting, and you can speak to this better. But Bram was a very analytically minded person or very detail oriented to the point that if I recall that he was even invited to become a lawyer and yeah and call to the bar it's it's called it like they, they didn't have law school in the days you're called to the bar and then you write an exam and if you pass it then you can function as a lawyer so he right. was called to the bar but he said no thank you I'm going to stick with with um, managing the theater so he was he was on top of things one of the stories out there is that he failed to secure the copyright in in the US in the states. Yeah. Yeah. Is that so, uh, Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I like the opportunity to to, to sort of, you know, air air um, the Stoker side of it and I can see why there was this urban legend that he did not. Uh, and that is when my wife and I got into this whole thing in, in 2012 with, with uh, researching and writing the family and, and Dracula the Undead uh, had come out and the Lost Journal was coming out and, and the centenary of Bram's death. Let's try to figure out what exactly went wrong with some of these things. And one was, took us a while to find the right person at the Library of Congress. And what happened back in the day is you've got to send two books over and you've got to make your application. You also have to, funnily enough, give away your story for free in two newspapers. So it's it's foreign foreign writers yeah. have to then have your story published in newspapers. One was in North Carolina, the other in Chicago, and I know there were some others, so that you that the United States, and this happened in many countries, was sort of protecting the American authors. So you could you could have read Dracula for free in a North Carolina newspaper or a Chicago newspaper and not have to go buy it when it finally comes out. He did that. He did send the two books over because I found um, a lady in the Library of Congress, Margaret Wood, who actually uh, sent us a letter saying, read my blog post, I've just done this. And she was, funnily enough, like you were, 
equally as perplexed why a man with such a legal mind and a legal background, somebody who'd write a legal manual for all the clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland, why would he mess up so badly? Especially since, Aaron, he'd been to America a number of times, eight total, with the Lyceum Theater troupe to, to, to do plays and travel around the country. He knew all the labor laws. He knew all the train schedules. He knew every, all the details about how to get around there, taxation and so on. So it didn't make any sense that, that he screwed up. And to make a long story short, they admitted that there was some kind of a filing error by filing the book Dracula under either Bram Stoker and Abraham Stoker. Bram was actually named after his father. So it, 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 the fact that he used two different names might have messed up somebody and the two books were put in different parts of Library of Congress, thus bringing up this urban legend that he did not um, file a copyright. And that may have had something to do with then the, the, the Nosferatu uh, debacle, which we'll get into in a while. But in fact, he did. And the family did collect royalties from uh, Doubleday. Um, we, we confirmed that by writing Doubleday a, le a letter and said, no, absolutely we did. So there is enough evidence now to sort of disprove one of these urban legends. And I'm glad to be able to say it on your show that Margaret Wood, thank you very much. You've, uh, you know, you've righted a, a wrong and a misconception. So here we are. Let's let's talk a little bit about Nosferatu because, as I said, it's I think March fourth, twenty nineteen twenty two is when it came out. This is the uh, German expressionist film. Great film, really enjoyable horror movie, and introduced Dracula on film, and yet a unauthorized adaptation and Florence who was 64 when she, when her husband died, she's now she's, she's trying to make a living, trying to, uh, you know, protect her husband's legacy, try to, you know, make some money off of this book. What, what happens? Because the story is, is that this company Prana, puts out an unauthorized adaptation and then we go to court, uh, fill it in from there about what we get wrong and, and set as much of the record straight as you can. Well, it's, it's hard to set all the records straight, but you, you've, you've touched on the key, the key notes at the moment. Florence was at, when this happened, you know, 74 years old, her, her mm. health is beginning to fail. Her eyesight's beginning to fail. She is struggling a little bit financially, but most importantly, she's, she's struggling because a wrong has been done. And she's recognized once she got a notice. Now, we don't exactly know. Nobody does exact, exactly know how she was aware that this film premiered uh, in, in the Berlin Zoo. But somehow she, she did. Um, and, and she then ended up going to the Incorporated Society of Authors. I do know that for a fact because I've now seen all the letters. And luckily, all those letters back and forth between Florence, the Incorporated Society of Authors, and the German lawyer that they hired are in the possession of the British Museum Library. So that's, that's a cool record. What we don't have, because I got in touch a couple of years ago, knowing this 100th was coming up and I wanted to learn more, just like the Library of Congress, what happened? The records in Germany are, are almost non-existent. And it's possible because of you know bombing, fires, whatever it was during World War II, there are 
very, very few records of German court system back in the day. There is nothing showing Prana Films' side of the story, why they thought they could get away with it. Did they, in fact, approach Florence Stoker and say, we would like to buy a license from you? My understanding is they did not. They simply ex thought they could get away with it. And there is nothing in, I've looked through all the boxes that I mentioned earlier in the show about my, my cousins. Uh, they've got nothing, the stuff they've given away to Trinity College, there's nothing in there that shows correspondence between Prana and Florence Stoker saying, we'd like to license the film. So that it doesn't seem to be any attempt to, to ask for a license or permission. They simply put in the opening credits and the promotional material freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula. And right. then try, tried to get away with it. And and let me just interject for a moment for anyone out there. Okay, yes. So we are now in the 1920s. It's easy enough to think 100 years ago, copyright law was certainly different, but still existed. There, there was still copyright law and you still had to secure a license to adapt a work. Now, Prana... And again, this is uh, about nearly uh, nine years, I think, before uh, the Bela Lugosi Browning Dracula came out, yep. right? But yep. but Prana, as far as this question of whether or not they tried to seek approval, tried to seek a license, there is some precedent, some track record on their part that would suggest uh, maybe they were just kind of going off half-cocked thinking that they weren't weren't going to get caught because this is uh, not their first time doing this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the digging that, that I've done, uh, um, bentonfilms.com is a great location to go and look for some of this stuff. And and I found that um, they actually adapted, freely adapted a Robert Louis Stevenson um, book into a movie. Uh, I don't know if that went to court again, no court records. And my friend over in, in Germany, um, Holger Mandel, who is a, uh, German historian, the film historian, couldn't find anything there either. So, yeah, you're right. The law existed. Did these guys just think they were above the law, could get away with it? Was Dracula, you know, not such a big hit in the day? It hadn't even hit the stage yet. Could they get away with it? Who knows? But the, the long and the short of it is Florence needed help financially to have a, a run a battle. So she had to convince first. It was like she had a battle on a number of fronts to convince the Incorporated Society of Authors in England, it's an all-male society who Bram had been a member of, you need to represent me. Well, first they said, well, the only reason you're joining is because you want us to represent you in court in Germany, which is going to be very expensive. And we're not really sure we're going to prevail because it's really hard to get money from somewhere over there. Florence somehow convinced the president to, to let it happen. We don't know how it did, but she did. And that's kind of cool in the letters. So she had to join for 10 pounds and then they got a lawyer. And the letters back and forth, Aaron, are really pretty cool because it shows that um, the, the, the German lawyer representing the, the Society of Authors did everything he could to settle out of court. But uh, Prana Films said, you know, ab absolutely no, we're not interested. And a, and a, and a fee of 5,000 pounds was dangled, apparently. Um, and, and they said, no, um, not interested. So this went on for two and a half years, this court case, running up a lot of bills, I'm sure. And there was a lot of back and forth to Florence at the time. And uh, finally, when the court ruled in favor of the Corporate Society authors on behalf of Florence, Prana Films waved the flag, we're bankrupt. 
we, you know, nothing to pay. So it's like the Society of Authors don't get any money out of this and, and make matters worse. The receivers of Prana Films file an appeal. <laughs> so, so here are more letters saying we're going to have to now go and uh, represent you in the appeal. And it doesn't seem to be any money worth it. Do you think we could at least get the films? And, and, and could the judge actually rule in favor of destroying the films? So here's another sort of urban legend. I don't have the exact answer because there's no exact record. Did Florence Stoker said, I want you to destroy all the films? Because the lawyer in Germany for the authors found out that there had been five or six ed editions of this floated around Europe as, as previews. So it wasn't going to be that easy just to have a settlement for the one film in Germany or have that one destroyed. The Incorporate Society of Authors realized that there was going to need to be four or five or six court cases in all these countries where the films were to either get them back, to have them destroyed, or to have settlements in each of them. So it was a nightmare. The film had, had already spread around. It come to America as well. And the biggest problem with the one in America, Aaron, was by this time, and again, we're fast forwarding now two and a half, three, four, five, six, seven years, the stage plays have been going on and very successfully. And, and Balderston, uh, John Balderston, an American producer who had teamed up with Hamilton Dean, the, Brit, the Irish playwright, who was working with Florence legally and licensed, they were dangling the, the rights from the play to Universal. And Florence was worried that, oh my gosh, if a pirated version of a film is allowed to move around and I can't stop it, why would they want to buy the license for me, Dean and Balderston for the proper film? And that yeah. added another two years and I'm, I'm sure a lot of heartache for Florence. Again, doing the right thing for the family, Bram being his legal mind, and she keeps getting one more roadblock and another. But finally, the, the good story is Universal did buy that one copy to get it out of circulation and probably used it to look at it to you know try to get something out of it for their own purposes, but mostly to get it off the market. And Florence did end up making a nice set, you know, a nice payday of forty thousand dollars, which in those days was a lot of money. So at the end of the day, in the hundredth anniversary of the film, the one twenty-fifth of Dracula, we can say, yeah, the film has survived. And the rights have been, you know, the wrongs have been righted. Florence got her settlement. The precedent, as you mentioned, Aaron, at the beginning of the show, has been set for artists and, and musicians and writers. So it's a pretty good, happy ending of the story if it wasn't brutal for poor Florence during that seven-year stretch. Do you think Do you think Florence, who, by the time this is resolved, we're now talking about a woman that's, you know, right at pretty much 80 years old, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Close to it. Do you think that the legacy of Florence is that she's been maligned as some sort of artistic villain or or has she gotten a bad rap? I think so. And, and that's what kind of irritates the heck out of me is when I look at all these, especially there's a lot of reviews now because the film is being shown, it's been remastered, it's been new inner titles and music. People say, oh, it almost didn't survive because that horrible Florence Stoker almost squashed it. It was really the German courts that were going to have it destroyed because Prana did something illegal. She she does get a bad rap. 
and 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 I have seen a couple of, uh, for instance, in the Irish Times recently, Derek Scully contacted me and wanted my opinion, and I didn't have to give him much because he was all on the Florence side too, saying, "No, wait just a sec." E- even though this sort of a, you know, the precedent was set in Germany, he said it's a symbolic precedent, but every single filmmaker artist should look back and go, "This probably was the first novel to film." Um, copyright infringement that set a precedent way back in you know 1922 because the films were just getting started then so they have florence stoker thank you for fighting that battle thank you for the heartache that you went through and thank you for the incorporated society of authors that were convinced by florence to hang in there and pay a boatload of money knowing they weren't getting anything back even to stick you know hang in there um through the the, even you know the, the appeal yeah, uh, I went to with with um, uh, with Robert Eighteen Basang and, and a lady who actually wrote a book about the stage writing of Dracula. She brought me and Robert over to the uh, British Library, and I even saw letters um, from a German lawyer, the same German lawyer, after everything had been settled, and he came back and said, "Oh, I've just found out that Nosferatu is still being shown in Berlin. Do you want us to pursue?" And I can see the letter from the Incorporated Society of Authors saying, Mrs. Stoker has gladly sold the rights uh, to Universal, these matters out of her hands and ours as well. It was like sigh of relief that the coffers of the Incorporated Society of Authors didn't have to sustain yet another yeah. battle. And the film lives on. And you know what, Aaron, we're, we're better for it because as you said, again, yourself, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good movie. It's a great period piece probably one of the closest adaptations to Bram's book. What do you think? Yeah. I, I, so I like the, the variations that were introduced and Nosferatu, the things that live on with our lore about vampires, such as sunlight, you know, killing the vampire and, um, and Orlock is, well, our count, uh, Dracula, from Bram's book is somewhat suave and Orlock is this hideous creature, but then even that visual, the aesthetic of Orlock continues on to this day. The idea that he doesn't actively set out to create vampires. If I recall in Nosferatu also, I think um, the Mina character is more of a, gets gets more of a heroic play in Nosferatu. Yeah. Because like we don't have a Van Helsing. Like she's the only one that kind of stands up and is able yeah. to help destroy this rather than the Van Helsing character. You're right. And and the other thing that always gets me, I mean, I am squeamish around rats. Bats, I don't know, for some reason I'm cool with them. But <laughs> but rats, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, at, at the time of this of this film in the twenties, there was all sorts of, you know, plague Sure. connections between rats and plague that were, you know, not mysteriously, but again, science was not very well developed ups, you know, really upsetting the health in Germany. So it was sort of this pestilence of rats connected to, you know, this Count Orlock creature who actually looks like a, a human version of a rat. Yeah. I I think that, I think there can be, look, looking back on history, I, I think it requires a lot of nuance. And I think sometimes we lose that nuance in uh, the 21st century, it's either 
completely uh, lionizing someone or damning them. And I think there's there's room to do kind of uh, look at things with a certain perspective. So I think that Piranha films seem like they were acting with bad faith. I think I, I, I don't know, but seems like that may have been the case. But then you also have the director uh, of Murnau, you have Max Shrek who played Orlock, these people that were just kind of doing a job and doing a good job. And looking back with nuance after a hundred years, I think is probably necessary when it comes to this movie. And yeah, I'm glad that it, it, it continues to be to exist that we did not lose it. I, I saw a, a version of it in Dublin, Ireland in a, in a beautiful big old Gothic church with a, with a, with a orchestra playing very gothic score um and 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 that was really cool and so to to this day to uh, have that you know even that there is this interest for a silent film you know in 2022 that still attracts a lot of attention and helps people understand what filmmaking was like back in the day but you know imagine a lot of people they want to look they want to watch really cool cgi they want to watch lots of mute lots of great music and skin and flesh and blood but to sit back and watch this with something as creative as an orchestra doing a film score, a music score, and just appreciate what was cutting edge at the time, and it's still being relevant today, is huge. Yeah. Well, as we as we wind down with our talk, and I could really talk to you for hours as a friend and also just interviewing you about these topics because I, I just absolutely love it. But for you... Having, I, I think it would be a gross understatement to say that Bram Stoker and Dracula has impacted your life. But, you know, as you're now into pretty much a, a decade of this, more a little bit more than a decade of your research, right? The yeah. <laughs> As you just reflect back, how do you process the idea that you knew the name and you knew the family legacy, but this is more than a, a fun party trivia party fact for you. This now very much defines your life. It it does. And I didn't realize that at the beginning, you know, it was like fairly simple. Um, My wife who's big in the genealogy, she's, she's Southern uh, and wants to, you know, like many, let's figure out our roots. And I seem to be the only one in the family who, was interested in listening to this one one of my uncles he was the last of the of the four alive my father had died earlier so his brother who who knew that jenny and i were interested in it, and he'd fax stuff down from canada for me oh you got to see this you got to see this and we were digging into first of all um my great-grandfather george stoker who was actually very close to bram and lived with him while he was going to med school and actually invented ozone therapy um and comes from a very uh, his wife was a very um steeped in tradition in the Maclacuddy family in, in Ireland. Um, and that kind of brought me around to, well, let's now look into the other members of the family in Bram as well. So I've, I've come sort of by it, you know, not directly just to get into the Dracula side. That's kind of obviously the hot, more high profile stuff. And now, you know, it's hard to get away from it. I, I will say sort of sadly, though, in this last year, my two greatest mentors, Elizabeth Miller, who I did the Lost Journal, journal with, she became a close friend um, and was what we, we, we call the Dracula police because she didn't let anybody get off with any sort of speculation. She passed away just about two months ago after, after a long illness. 
And then Robert 18 Basang, who was a good friend of hers, the two of them actually um, transcribed the Dracula uh, notes, and we did a, a annotated Dracula together. Robert passed away uh, about a year ago uh, after going into hospital for a heart attack, and he was on blood thinners and just a freak accident going to the loo. He slipped and banged his head and, and uh, had internal bleeding. So those, those two people were, were the ones that sort of held my hand and, and welcomed me into the club, so to speak, and working with them on books, on articles, going to conferences, meeting people through them, gave me a leg up, uh, Aaron, because, you know, as every bit of scholarship, you've got a club, so to speak. So once I got established there because of these two generous people, I became more accepted sort of in the, in the popular culture side. Of, oh, this guy must, he's not just a family member who's trying to profit off his family's name. He's a guy that's done the research, that's found the lost journal, that's been to Transylvania, that leads tours, that's paid his dues, that's co-authored books with writers that are much better than I am, but I can provide a boatload of research. Um, you know, that makes me proud to say that I, I can um, hold my own, you know, in Dracula circles, but also I'm very proud to promote Bram Stoker's legacy as, as one of my biggest goals is when I came into this, why isn't Bram Stoker as well known as his creation? You know, why is Dracula, as you said at the top of the show, known all over the globe, and the guy that created him is not? So, like, one of the things that I'm doing in this 125th anniversary is leading a tour to go to Whitby and go to Cruden Bay, and I've, and I've got a plaque that's now just been approved by the planning department in Cruden Bay to put on the wall of the hotel to show people where Bram did his thinking, where he did his writing, where he set parts of the story. I've got now a plaque up on the mountain in uh, a volcano in Transylvania where Hans de Roos found the map coordinates in Bram's notes, and that's the, where the fictional castle Dracula is. So I, I'm trying to be a giver um, and trying to help promote Bram at the same time is, I got to say, I'm enjoying the ride. I love chatting with guys like you who, who are interested in it. Uh, when we get together at conferences, we meet all kinds of other people, as you well know, that love to talk about it. Sometimes they know a heck of a lot more about the movies than I do because I'm not a big movie buff, but they've got the passion mm. of where it all came from. And that's 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 what I love is, is hearing their passion and their interest and wanting to know more about my famous relative. Yeah, I was going to say the hiking <laughs> up the volcano. That's uh, that's not something that if you were just cashing in on the name uh, is something that you would be likely to do. You've done the research and you've 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 literally walked the walk <laughs> and, and got walk. lost and got yeah. lost in the fog. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, just kind of two final questions, but the what has been the moment the most surreal moment maybe it is going up the volcano the most surreal moment of doing this where you're like okay this has now become my life hanging out uh, in new orleans at a at a vampire convention roaming around uh england and romania and what has been the moment the most surreal kind of moment for you throughout this journey well there, there, there's a couple of private ones and then there's some more public ones. So mm -hmm. the, the private ones, and, and it just happened recently because uh, my wife points out to me how much money I spend on these online auctions buying <laughs> letters that Bram Stoker wrote to different people. Yeah. So you think it's like, why, why should I have to buy letters? Well, obviously he's famous in these letters when they're signed. And I, and I found one, Aaron, that was really interesting because it was at a time of Bram's life 
that I was really interested in. That is, after Irving died, what was Bram doing before he died? You know, that sort of seven-year period. And I found this, this, this letter written from the Kilmarnock Arms Hotel in, in Cruden Bay, Scotland. And it's really interesting. He, he is writing to an American um, opera singer, David Bisham, who is producing an opera show in London and was asking Bram, or had asked Bram in a previous letter, would he come work for him? And Bram, in his way, is saying, I hadn't thought of you know, still working in the theater. I'm, I'm now devoting my time to writing, but I will come for you. Um, here's my salary. This is what I've done with Irving. So it was somewhat autobiographical letter. But Aaron, it was also really sad to see the man who had been on top of the theatrical world with Irving and the Lyceum Theater, helping Irving get knighted. And now he's having to write to an American opera guy to, 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 to work for a few months. It was like a four or five month run yeah. just to, to fill a gap, to make some money to live on and, and for his wife. So that was a strange kind of, but surreal aha moment to get a glimpse into his life and his mindset by buying this letter. But the other ones, you know, are, are when I, when I go to big conferences and um, you know, fan conventions, comic cons yeah. here and there where I am on stage and I'm pouring my heart out and giving a presentation and I see people in the audience, you know, nodding their head or looking like, Oh my gosh, this guy knows what he's doing. And then the questions that come in and they're really good questions. And it means, cause having been a former teacher, I know I've connected with people and that my mission is worth it. It is, it is, it has value what I'm doing. It's not just entertainment. It is giving people insight. And, and I try to do the same in these books that I co-author. They are fictional, but it's giving people a connection to the story of Bram and this incredible Dracula story that means so much to so many people that's been adapted to stage, to film, to big screen, little screen, so many things throughout the world. And Bram Stoker plays a small but significant role. And I do the same to try to promote who this man was. What was his backstory? to put him in a position to change the world. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just happy doing it and I love it. Yeah. Literally introducing something that, that changed the world. And, and yeah. that is, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. And uh, speaking of fan events, I know you and I will be seeing each other in August at Michigan Paracon. Looking forward to that. That's a great event. I'm excited for you to be there. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I've been a couple times now. But beyond that, as I let you go, uh, tell me what you have in the works, what projects you're working on, and how can people track you and and check you out on the road as well? Well, I guess the first thing is bramstokerstate.com is the website that my wife and I run, and, and we put a lot of information about Bram and the rest of the family on there. I have a website that I don't keep up as much as I should, dacrestoker.com. <laughs> Uh, Facebook page, I do a lot and I post a lot of things there uh, about wh what different conventions I'm going to, what I'm, what I'm, where my uh, appearances are. Um, I'm going to be in New Orleans in, in the end of April. Actually, you mentioned that at the uh, Vampire Cafe doing sort of a dinner theater talk while people are eating vampire themed food. I'm going to be talking about Bram's life and his research and writing of Dracula. And then at Potions, which is a speakeasy in the, in the, in the back edges of, of, of the French district, uh, doing some readings from Dracula, some things that I learned while writing the annotated Dracula with Robert Bassang 
highlighting stuff that was taken out of the Dracula novel in the typescript. So those hidden little Easter eggs that, and there's plenty of them, that Bram was either asked to take out or he took out, that like, like the original ending uh, on a volcano and so, so on and so forth. But, you know, follow me on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, and you'll see some of the cool stuff I'm doing. And Aaron, I think we can, we're going to have to sit back and have a, have a cold beer up in Michigan in August because it'll probably be hot there. But I think our topics will be hotter too, don't you think? I, I think so. And, uh, and we'll also just say, you know, watch this space as far as additional uh, news that you'll be rolling out about some projects, right? So, Absolutely. and yep. keep an eye on your social media. You've got some fun things to announce and uh, we'll, we'll just kind of keep our eyes peeled for that. But my friend, oh, well, Daker, let, sorry, let me say, let me say one thing. Cause you did, you told me to say this, all the cool stuff about Nosferatu will be coming out later on in screen magazine. Yep. Yes. Uh, that that's, that's an article that is uh, very in depth of what Aaron and I chatted about. And then also the annotated Dracula coming out. I'm not allowed to mention the name of the publisher just yet, but it's going to be coming out soon uh, with a lot of cool insights. So Aaron, again, thank you for, for, for taking the time and the great questions and the in-depth interview that you've given. It's, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, man. Thank you, my friend. And uh, thanks for uh, everyone out there. Thank you for joining. Don't forget to subscribe. Please give me a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, on Patreon. And also at Talk Strange Pod on Twitter. You can watch our interviews, our Talking Strange interviews at youtube.com slash den of geek US and download Talking Strange every week on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. 